Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. On this podcast, we are talking to a couple of solar historical people. I was kind of thinking about this earlier on and how to present this, and it kind of reminds me of like if we were talking about music and we were comparing that to the solar industry, this would be sort of like Dylan and the Dead, like getting a couple of people together. And the neat thing that I decided to do this time is to make one of the guests a surprise guest. And so we have Terrence Parker here. He works for Solus right now. He's been in the industry forever. And a special surprise guest that many of you already know. And so we're gonna just throw that out there right now. Hey, surprise guest, how about just saying the word hi? Let's just see if he could figure out who you are from one word. I doubt it, you know, it's kind of hard. Hi, Terrence. Hi, Sean. Hey, hey, surprise guest. Any idea there? Word? <laughs> so let me just give you some clues now. Let's see. So he's been in the industry for about 40 years. That's not Ward. And I know we were talking about Ward when we were putting you on the podcast. And that would be Ward Bauer, who's kind of famous. And yeah, Ward invented the grid tie inverter. But he's known you since those times. And if you wanted to guess more, another thing that he's done is he started a solar training organization. Oh, is that Johnny? <laughs> You got it. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, Johnny Weiss. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here. It's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Hi, Terrence. <laughs> hey, Johnny. Hey, good to hear your voice, man. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, if you had said anything more than hi, Johnny, I would have definitely got it. Uh, <laughs> you know, Johnny played a big role in my career, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking today about some of that stuff. Yeah, how about well, just telling us the role he played in your career? Well, my solar career actually started in November of 87, and I had applied to a small school in Michigan that was offering about the only four-year degree that was available back then in solar energy. And so I was able to get a renewable energy engineering technical degree, a four-year degree from Jordan College. It was a small college in Michigan, and the owner of the college had a real interest in renewables back then. He was kind of a fire and brimstone preacher, but for some reason had an independent streak and got into solar energy early in the 80s and consolidated all of his little projects that he had done at each one of the little campuses in one campus called the Jordan Energy Institute. And Johnny is familiar with that place. There was another one, Red Wing, wasn't there up there in Wisconsin, Johnny, that was also doing some college solar work? You bet. That sounds familiar. Yeah, but Jordan College is now closed. But at the time, it really was an opportunity for me to get into the solar community. And back then, as you might remember, Sean, that was right after Reagan had pretty much cut all of the funding and everything else for solar, had ripped the solar panels off the roof that Jimmy Carter had put on there. And the industry was pretty lean and mean through the mid-80s. And there was just a few loci of enthusiasts. And one of them, of course, was out of Carbondale. The Solar Energy International had established itself already as a place where folks could go to get an education in solar power. And the other one was up in Amherst, Wisconsin. And eventually that all came together as the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. 
And I kind of got involved a little bit in that back in 89 and 90 when I got invited to the first Midwest Renewable Energy Association Fair, the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair, Sustainable Living Fair now, I think they call it. And that was just phenomenal for me. Although I was learning how to put what photovoltaics was and what the word meant and learning all the different kinds of renewable energies and micro hydro with Don Harris and wind systems with Mixagrillo and photovoltaics with Conrad Hines and Ailey Hines, the librarian for them. This is the environment that brought me in, that welcomed me. A marine biologist really, who had an interest in learning about solar power to run his own little farm on a remote island. You know, that was my dream. And that's why I got into solar power. I wanted to know how to make my own power for my own aqua farm. And that's what I did when I got to Jordan College. I learned all that and I got introduced to Solar Energy International because that was the textbook that we were using in our photovoltaics class. Literally, Johnny, that was how I first saw your name was in that textbook that was at the heartbeat of photovoltaic education back then. Wow. So when do you think you guys first met? Well, this is interesting as well. We may have met briefly, I don't know, maybe in 89 or 90 or something, but what ended up happening was I ended up going out to the Pacific and living on an island out there doing my aquaculture thing after I had graduated from Jordan Energy Institute. It was a great little career at Jordan. I became the student council president and I was literally living at the school. I was so into it. (laughs) (laughs) I would stay late and I started building the solar array for our solar car that entered into the 1990 GM Sun Race. And we were a little school with a tiny budget. But we got together with Western Michigan and we put together a car and it came in seventh place or eighth place. It was a wonderful experience where you're putting your engineering degree to use on a car race that starts today, not tomorrow. You know, you can't put it off because the dog ate your homework. You needed to make sure all your engineering work was done on that day. So it was a wonderful way to cap my education career. So I went out to the Pacific and I was doing my own thing out there, but something happened to me. And this is when the story happened, Sean, that I was telling you about with Ward Bauer. I was on an airplane from one small little island to another, a little two-prop airplane, and I was wearing one of my Jordan Energy shirts, and it had reference to solar power on the back, and I must have been leaning forward in my seat a little bit, and someone behind me noticed my t-shirt and tapped me on the shoulder and changed my life. That's why we all got to wear lots of solar t-shirts. It did. It made such a big difference because Ward Bauer was on that plane. By the way, everybody, Ward Bauer invented the grid tie inverter in 1977. Ward is a pioneer in our industry and really has stayed with us and continues to work in the industry here. Anyway, at the time, he was working for the Design Assistance Center over there out of New Mexico. What was happening was the U.S. government was putting quite a bit of money into the Marshall Islands, which was a trust territory of the United States back in those days. And they were trying to stimulate the use of solar energy in those islands. So did you and, have your own island? Well, is yeah, like, I had an, my a, own. There's I an island own... called the Terrence Parker Shoal or something <laughs> like that? No, <laughs> the island was called Wa'u, uh, W-A-U, and it was part of the Mili Atoll, M-I-L-I, Atoll in the Marshall Islands. And there's a whole big story to talk about with the Marshall Islands because they're going underwater. The whole nation is going underwater. How big was your island then? 
Like, could you walk across it? 12 acres. 12 acre island. Wow. <laughs> yeah, tiny did... little island in the middle of did... the ocean. But did... the water was so clear and the water was so clean. And they still had a native population of black pearl oysters and giant clams, which were my specialty animals. Because you were a marine biologist. Wow. That's right. And I'd wrote, written my thesis on oysters. And so that was why I went to the Marshalls was, number one, they were using American dollars. They had a U.S. zip code. They were a trust territory. And they offered one of the aqua farmers there on island offered me a job to be their staff biologist and to eventually get some space of my own to work. So it was a great experience. And like I say, I was diving every day and, uh, you know, uh, taking solar showers with the beautiful view of the ocean every day. So that's uh, kind of funny how being a marine biologist and then trying to get your own power turned you into a solar person. And you're probably not even studying marine biology anymore. It's, it's true. I, uh, like I say, someone tapped me on the shoulder that day and changed my life. What mm -hmm. happened was Ward noticed that I was wearing a solar t-shirt. And as I said, the marshals were getting aid from the United States, solar power aid. They had put in almost $680,000 into the marshals in solar energy development work and had hardly anything to show for it. Ward would set up a project and then he'd come in you know, a year later and see that either the equipment was missing or not working or wasn't being taken up or something like that. And so it was real trouble. And so what they needed was a man on the ground. Ward couldn't spend all that time on the islands going, you know, in these remote areas and living in tents and things like that. Right. Uh -huh. And so he needed somebody on the islands. And so when he saw there was a solar guy flying in this airplane from one island to another in a relatively remote spot, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, what the heck are you doing here? And uh -huh. I told him, you know, who I was and what I was doing. And he knew Solar Energy International. And of course, and he knew the solar power of people of the United States at the time. And what ended up happening, Sean, was that he said, you know, I might have a job for you on the main island, not on this little island you're living on now, but you would have to give up your, your 12 acres, uh, little 12 acres there. We can move you to the big island of 22,000 people. <laughs> wow, and, got uh, a little claustrophobic uh, there. I know. Well, that was <laughs> one of the people. issues, Sean. It really <laughs> was. It was one of the issues where you got a bit claustrophobic in a way because every day it was 82 degrees and sunny and beautiful. We were right on the equator. If anybody wants to look up Millie Atoll, M-I-L-I, -I, in the Marshall Islands, you'll see right at the International Day line and the equator that's where it is it's way out there so i guess like for people that don't know where the marshall islands are i guess they're out in the pacific they're past hawaii kind of like that indeed and it mm. takes about 24 hours to get there that was one of the issues when you're at that remote if you got anything wrong with you let's say you got bit by a shark or something like that I hate it when you, that happens yeah, yeah you could uh, Johnny, you ever been ray. bit by a shark nope not yet <laughs> yeah, be careful. <laughs> Did you guys see each other out there? Like, Johnny, were you out in those islands too? I was in those islands, in the Solomon Islands, for a couple of weeks doing a project, but I never connected with Terrence out there. It was back in Colorado when we first met. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, because cool. when Ward offered me that job, this was middle of 92, Ward offered me the job and he said, hey, what we want you to do is we want you to help with solar development here in the Marshall Islands. We need you to figure out what's going on with the systems that we've already installed. And then we need you to help us deploy some more systems. And then we need you to help us maybe with some sort of policy work that might encourage the use of solar power in the Marshall Islands. And indeed, that's what I ended up doing. But before I went, 
Ward says, hey, you know, we could send you to Colorado to this Solar Energy International place, and you could take some courses with them and kind of get, you know, hone your skills back up on solar power before you go out there in September of 92. And that's exactly what I did. And that's when me and Johnny spent some time together. That's cool. It was yeah. September of 92, where I started taking some Solar Energy International classes and at the time, who was with us? Was uh, Ken Olson? I know he's the co-founder with Johnny. Yeah, I think Ken was still with you guys at the time, back in 92, Johnny, right? That's right. And at the time, it was just the beginning days of home power with Richard Perez, right? And so Richard was actually on the site when we were doing the install as well. That's pretty cool. So one thing I was thinking about this podcast and getting a couple of guys like you on it, is it's sort of like history. And so we get these podcasts and they get published. And as far as I know, they're gonna stay up there forever. And someday there's gonna be some researchers when the whole world is running on solar power a hundred or a thousand years from now. And they're gonna be looking back and writing history books and they're gonna be listening to it. So let's say hi to those people that are a hundred and a thousand years from now. I wonder if people in a thousand years could even understand the way we talk, but Hey, people from 100 years from now, we're talking to you. <laughs> These are exciting for today. Johnny, you know, don't slap as much glass as I used to or connecting wires as much as I used to. Now I'm doing a lot of education work and I'm doing a lot of compliance work as well, you know, where the sausage is made in solar. And it really is wonderful to work with the IREC group, Brian Leidick, and all the other inverter manufacturing representatives that attend the FIGI meeting every Friday, Forum for Integration of Grid Integration of Inverters. And to hear all these folks talking about the regulatory changes that are happening in our industry, both with the utilities and with our industry and with all our industry representatives and recognized testing laboratories. We're really seeing the change actually finally happening, aren't we, Johnny? I remember when Bob Schultz once told me, you know, we are all wishing for a dollar a watt, that we would finally get acceptance of solar and it would start to really grow the way it has. And well, here it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really exciting time for solar worldwide, Terrence. Tell us a little more about what you're currently doing. Bring us up to date. Yeah. So that experience with the Sandia Labs and Design Assistance Center and my experience in the Marshall Islands in doing development work there really kicked off my solar career. And so after that, I joined with a French company and started traveling around the world doing solar power installations in, in Borneo and Sri Lanka and Africa and Brazil. Solar power has taken me around the world. I've been in every jungle. And so it was an exciting career, truthfully, back then. You really had to look for the money. You know, I was funded by a wide variety of folks back then. You know, there wasn't a lot of interest in solar power in Michigan back then in the early 90s. During the Clinton years, I spent over overseas, teaching and doing installations and remote site project management and that sort of stuff. That was my specialty. And I was being funded by the World Bank, the Japanese International Cooperative Agency, by Total Oil, Shell Oil, Texaco. These were Sandia. Some of these names might appear to be a kind of different than solar, let's say. But back then, they were the ones that were funding all of this international work that I was doing. And so I would leverage their funding funds to do work that would help people become more sustainable and get them introduced to solar power. And for me at the time, 
I guess I just was less concerned about where the money was coming from and more concerned about getting as many solar power panels, solar solar panels up and running as I could. Bring us up to date, though. Tell us what you're involved in now. I'm real curious. It's been a while. Yeah, so... After I got out of the jungle, let's say in 99, I joined Unisolar and have a whole story to tell about amorphous PV modules and building integrated PV and all of that. I stayed there until 2010. And then in 2010, I joined a Solar Bridge, a startup in Austin, Texas, doing microinverters. And so at the time, Enphase and Solar Bridge were battling back and forth to become the top microinverter producers back then. And I worked with them until 2015 when SunPower ended up buying SolarBridge. Enphase eventually won that game, and a lot of the people that I worked with at SolarBridge are now working for Enphase. So I have a soft spot in my heart for microinverters. I lost my job, really, when SunPower bought SolarBridge in 2015, and so I took a sabbatical year. It was my 25th year in the business, and I took a sabbatical year, and I walked the Pacific Crest Trail, and wrote a book and invented, you know, a little solar thingy. And it was a lot of fun, a great year. And I wondered whether or not anybody would be interested in me if I tipped my toe back in the water, you know. And April of 2016, I put my resume out there. And within three weeks, Solus Inverters hired me. And this was my first job I'd ever been at where I had a remote office. I'd always worked in a cubicle, you know, from 99 through 2015. And finally, I'm remote in my own home. It was quite wonderful. And I started working for Solus, and they were just five gigawatt, relatively small player in the PV string inverter world. But Johnny, today, that's where I still am. Seven and a half years later, I'm still at Solus and doing their application engineering, a lot of writing, technical marketing, and their compliance work. Me and Michael Allen and a couple others are all working to ensure that our products are up to speed on, you know, UL 1741SB and have all the PVRSS certifications and all of this stuff. It's really a whole thing now to be not only compatible, let's say, well, our company globally, but to be compatible here in North America. But now you got to be compatible to particular jurisdictions like PPL, for example, in Pennsylvania, they may want a particular standard. And so it's an interesting time to be in compliance. But that's what I'm doing these days, Johnny, is I'm doing mostly technical training, marketing, doing compliance work, and then writing application engineering pieces for our inverter products. Great. And you're working remotely? You were pretty early in that game working yeah. remotely, huh? Oh, yeah. I have no issue working remotely and keeping a schedule and getting up and getting to work and hitting targets for our team, even though I'm remote and only three yards from my bed to my office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, Sean, it's kind of nice to be able to work out of your own home. Yeah. There's so many inverter companies these days. Tell us a little more about Solus. Yeah. Well, we're number three. Did you know that? Yeah. Behind Huawei and SunGrow and then Solus, we're the third largest in terms of shipments in the world. And so we have a global market, 100 countries, and we've been working in North America since 2009. 2009, we were the first Chinese inverter to get the UL1741 certification. So we got a good history here, and we never left. We just kept building the team up, and Jimmy, our CEO, has just been very good at building the company up. And I got to tell you, after working at Unisolar, where I set the Long Beach Convention Center on fire twice, Sean, <laughs> and then over in Solar bridge where a solar bridge were on the bleeding edge of microinverter development right 
it was a bit of a relief to come to Solus with a company that really believed in simplicity and reliability and really only built one product and they did it very well. And so it's been nice not having to go through recalls or product development or unsupported projects. It's just a slow and steady and easy climb. And so it's a bit relaxing, truthfully, Johnny, working for this company, <laughs> as opposed to the first two I joined here in the U.S., which was United Solar and solar bridge great what are the sizes of those inverters you're working on now is it big stuff is it little stuff is it off-grid stuff all of it. Yeah, we just introduced a new hybrid that can do off-grid, and which means that now off-grid guys can take advantage of those new high-voltage batteries, right? I mean, how many systems have we set up, Johnny, at 48 volts, right? 24 volts and even 12, right? And those batteries from Fortress and others, Rolls, everybody, you can get 48 volts in both lithium and lead-acid battery quality products these days. However, high voltage offers some real advantages. You know, it's a smaller footprint, more energy density, longer life, no smell. You can add to them later on, whereas you can never do that with lead acid. So there's a lot of advantages to high voltage, slightly wider temperature range. And so we really feel like it's kind of the future. And we really feel like it would be wonderful if some of these off-grid guys could start taking advantage of these new high voltage batteries. And so that's indeed, we come up with a new S6 hybrid that can do off-grid, but it can do on-grid as well. And so we got a full grid tie and hybrid line for Resi, and then we have a grid tie and hybrid for commercial, and then we have a big utility stuff. It's amazing, Johnny. I remember installing, you know, like SATCON or AE inverters that were the size of double-wide refrigerators at 250K, and now I'm offering a wall mount 350K. <laughs> so, wow. right. It's just amazing what's going on with PV string inverters, I think, especially with the new kinds of module level power electronics that are available, we can kind of match the value propositions that a lot of these dominant resi guys are doing here in the U.S., as well as make some inroads into the utility space with the new low cost PV string inverters that are being built today. So I think PV string is the platform to be on. It's the most exciting platform to be on these days. Where's everything manufactured? everything's in Ningbo. Now that's south of Shanghai. So everything's Chinese. And we like to get that right out front, you know, that although we sell everything under the Solus brand name, really it's a Chinese product and that carries some baggage for sure. We got a new factory in Vietnam, but really I did get some stuff from some of my colleagues on joining Solus, but I got to tell you, the company's run so well, and I really enjoyed the teams globally that I get to work with on this. We have teams in Italy and Spain and India and UK and Brazil and Mexico and the whole thing. And so it's an international family I've joined and really an international family here in the U.S. We have folks from Turkey and Pakistan and Ukraine and England and Mexico and Texas and me in the Midwest, all on one team and here in the U.S. It's just been really good for me because I've always been sort of an international person, Sean. I've always been somebody who had an empathy for folks like in the Marshall Islands, you know, who were very, very poor, or folks in Indonesia who had suffered through uh, tsunamis and other natural disasters and things like that. People in India who just are suffering horrible poverty there. It's really allowed me to become a bit more empathetic to what I'm seeing internationally. And so I guess I'm just not a rah-rah USA guy as much as I used to be. As much as I love flying home and be coming home to the Midwest, and I still think the Midwest is the best place on earth. 
you know, I do have some empathy for those folks around the world, and I love working with my international teams. Well, it's truly one world now, and that's a great opportunity for all of us to work together. And there's plenty of work for everybody. So I don't have any problem with products from all over the world, but we've all got a lot of work to do. So we might as well work together on it. That's my attitude. I think so. I think we can provide that elegant transition from oil to solar. And we don't have to dig it all out of the ground and just smoke up all the air while we're making our transition to these kinds of fuels, we can really do it better this time. So I'm looking forward to the future with renewable energies. It's an exciting field to be in. It's always been a field where you can talk to your kids about it. When you get into fascinating elevator conversations or conversations at the bar, just people want to know more about it. And so I love being in the business. It's so fun. Well, it's a very exciting time for everybody in renewable energies and solar is now going mainstream. And I remember talking with you years ago and with Richard Perez, like you mentioned from the home power days, that was our dream that maybe solar energy would get popular. Maybe it could be mainstream instead of just being a niche technology for us right. off-gridders. But boy, right. that day has really come and it's come with a very exciting time and a very exciting future. And boy, none too soon. We certainly need as much solar in the world as we can get. Oh, yeah. And wind, you know, and I learned so much at Jordan and in Carbondale at the time on the different types of technologies that we can utilize. And PV is only one of them. I mean, solar thermal is another one which was big back when we were talking back in the 90s, right, Johnny? And we don't hear so much about it today, but it's another beautiful technology for solar radiation that we can take advantage of. And I'm hoping that the geothermal really starts to get more popular as well. So these are good times. These are really exciting times in this transition that we're in. Great. Maybe we could talk about wind for a couple seconds. I know you mentioned Mick Sagrillo. He was my mentor too in the early days of residential wind systems. Boy, wind is making such a huge contribution at the large level, the offshore systems now. Small wind has kind of disappeared in a lot of ways. What's your perspective on the whole wind energy industry right now, Terrence? Yeah. So, well, I worked for the French for a while. So Vestas was a big company in Europe and I saw the growth of that company and they continue to grow today doing 300 megawatt machines, just gigantic stuff. And I do believe that offshore wind will become a dominant player, a good, probably let's say 15 or 20% player. I just can't see any other future there for them. So I really do think that wind is going to be giving us that at least a 25% of our power. I just can't see it any other way. Great. How about small wind? What's happened in the small wind world? These days, PV has become so less expensive that in terms of off-grid applications and residential size stuff, I just don't see that much of a future for small wind other than for the people that really want to play with it themselves, that want to have some fun with it. What's your feeling about small wind? You were involved with small wind for a long time. I was. And I learned my craft with Mixagrillo on the Jacobs short boxes, the classics from the old days. And then we started working with, of course, Berge and Southwest Power and all of those guys who were developing smaller wind systems back in those days. And when you talk about renewable energy here in Michigan, typically we talk about how solar power is great for the summer, but you really need a small wind machine for the wintertime. And in combination, you can be off-grid all year long here in Michigan using 
both technologies. And so I do think that there is some small wind stuff that continues to build, but I think it's getting even smaller, Johnny. You kind mm. of that middle ground, I think, is where I'm seeing some issues where you're putting up a 50, 60 foot tower. You know, even if it's a tilt up tower, it still becomes a thing. And I think that farmers and others here in Michigan and stuff are still doing a bit of that, but that part of it has become the more difficult one. And so we're seeing smaller wind, like 300 watt little machines that are tied to a microinverter, for example, and they're just kicking out AC power and you use, you know, four or five of them on a barn or something like that. And so I'm seeing some unique small wind systems continually being developed. And I think a lot of it's being driven by Australia. Australia loves their small wind and they do a lot of work in like boating and things like that. You see many boats with these small three foot mm -hmm. diameter wind machines. And so I think that there's some action really in potentially small wind stuff, ultra small wind, as opposed to that mid ground. And then, as I note, I think the world will be turning to big wind to stabilize a good portion of the grid. And boy, talk about big wind. These systems are getting huge. What's the size that you've run into these days? Every time I look, it seems like utility scale wind is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. These are monstrous machines. Maybe you can give your perspective on the size of these new machines. Oh, yeah, yeah. One UK is putting together one of the largest wind farms in the world. And they just put up, I think, the largest one, 800 feet in total height. The swept area, I think the tip of the blade is running at somewhere around 700 miles an hour. And this one sweep of the blade can run 75 houses or something like that. <laughs> insanity the size of these machines but with their low speed and gearing and things like that they can last a long time out there and of course i always worry about the ocean environment just tearing apart these mechanical devices and so there has to be quite a bit of maintenance i imagine for those devices way out there in the ocean spray so i worry a bit about that well it's an exciting time for all the renewables and i think you're right big wind is really going to play a large part with the lifestyles we're all trying to maintain you know offshore wind is going to be huge no pun intended yeah it's just insane the size of these machines you know here in michigan we have a lot of folks who are a little worried about renewables because they're seeing the big wind machines and the big solar farms maybe in some tillable, what they would consider tillable spaces, and they're a bit concerned about that. And so we're getting some backlash against big solar. But I think it really is a matter of just education and maybe putting a few extra bucks into putting slightly taller stanchions on the racking so that some sheep or goats can go underneath these arrays and not only clean them up, but actually act as an agricultural site. And so I think there's some good merit that can be put together there. And I don't think that there's going to be a problem in the future with it. Great. How about agrovoltaics? The yeah, idea exactly. of growing special plants underneath solar arrays seems like yeah. a wonderful land use thing that's going on. I'm really excited yeah. about learning more about that myself. Yeah. And I'm also very interested in that too, Johnny. I'm thinking, does the racking poles just need to be taller? Is that the only issue that we can fit a tractor or a herd of goats or something underneath or a herd of sheep underneath? I hear goats might be a diff difficult because they keep climbing up onto the solar panels. <laughs> right, right. That's what I've heard too. It only takes some modest modifications to get the array high enough so that we can actually do some agriculture underneath the array. Seems like an elegant balance to me. Agreed. And the batteries, too. This is another interesting thing. I think we can thank Elon for bringing forward the lithium battery and not just the car, but what it did was it kind of gave the American public 
a bit of trust in these new lithium batteries. You know, they didn't know what they were. They weren't sure how it was any different than a lead acid battery or what the heck it was. But they just sort of ended up kind of trusting it and they ended up buying his cars, you know. And now you hear my sister or my mom saying, oh, does it have a lithium battery? <laughs> and so there was that trust. And so I think we have to thank him for introducing the lithium technology and kind of building up a slight amount of trust in the technology. And so when solar decided, oh, we're going to try high voltage lithium batteries as well, there was already some acceptance of the technology, at least to give it a try. And I think we have the electric vehicle industry a little bit to thank for that. I'm encouraged by what I hear about the whole issue of recycling lithium. It sounds like some yes. good people are really starting to work on that. And that's an issue we've got with the recycling and the repurposing of photovoltaic modules. Now we've got that issue with the recycling of lithium products. I think we know that lead acid batteries have been able to be successfully recycled throughout the whole automotive industry. But paying attention to how we're going to deal with lithium mining in terms of the extraction issues and in terms of getting it out of the ground, but also in terms of recycling it, I'm just delighted that the whole industry is beginning to look at that in a serious way. Agreed. And I think the LFP, a lithium ferrous phosphate island, is a better technology for recycling. And you've seen, I believe, that Tesla has switched over from an NMC to an LFP battery. Please check me on my facts on that. I think they are making that transition. And I believe it's because of the recycling issue. And they're getting rid of cobalt, too, by getting rid of NMC. So I think there's a win-win there for moving to LFP, especially for homeowners. I think there's some real benefit there. I think it's important when we talk to the public about it, too. People talk about the issues of having to recycle these products. I mean, I think we have to remind people that what we need to compare this to is the fossil fuel industry and coal and natural gas. I mean, yes, there's drawbacks to using lithium products. LFP is clearly the leader and the best one currently available. But let's compare them to the alternative, not to be able to compare them to some ideal that doesn't exist. Right. You know, there's aqueous battery technologies where they're using a saltwater type and bigger footprint, but less of a disaster if they break or something. There's other technologies out there and there's always fusion, you know, what the heck's going to happen there, right? We're all going to have something the size of a basketball that's powering our entire home forever. You know, these kinds of, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but I think that there's some exciting technologies going on, storage being one of the most exciting. It gets rid of that intermittency argument, right? Where solar power was always not as good as coal because coal is 24 hours a day, whereas solar is only 12, right? And so batteries just eliminates that whole argument, whatever storage that might be. Right. And if we can make the grid smarter, like we need to do and like folks are talking about, so we can wheel power around, that's also going to help with the intermittency issues too. Battery technology, a smarter grid, I think it's all coming together. I don't think we should think about some of those far out technologies saving us in the long run. I think we've got technology ready and off the shelf available today that can make the difference with what I think is the most serious issue of our time, which is climate change, of course. That's right. And you've seen recent climate change numbers saying that we're blowing past 1.5 degrees. And that's going to have big consequences, I think, for us that we're not even aware of yet. And just got to remind people, too, that that 1.5 is in Celsius. So that's 2.7 Fahrenheit. Right. And it sounds like a tiny number, right? But on a weather scientist, it's a big number. And to see these kinds of changes in CO2 levels, just unprecedented kinds of changes, we're running a big experiment on ourselves. <laughs> and well, I'm hoping that renewable energies becomes a slice of that solution.
Well, it's certainly encouraging to hear that the photovoltaics is now a common word people understand. I mean, yeah. gosh, we remember Terrence when renewable energies, no one even knew what that was. They weren't talking about that. Huh. Now the whole vernacular has changed. The language has changed. People are talking about PV and photovoltaics and solar thermal. The education that's occurred has really made a tremendous difference. It's neat that we can see the changes that have happened just in terms of our career and timing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Mick Sigrillo was a real special person in my life because, as I said, I didn't know too much of what was happening in the industry when I joined in 88. And I found out later that it was quite thin and that there was just a few survivors left and kind of over there with Richard Perez and Bob Schultz up there at the border of Oregon and Washington. And then there was your group in Carbondale. And then there was the group over there in Wisconsin around Stevens Point and Amherst up in that area. But other than that, it was pretty thin, you know. And so when I started doing my education at Jordan Energy Institute in, in the Grand Rapids area of Michigan, my first internships, or what we used to call wind turnships, <laughs> were spent at Mick's house over there in Wisconsin. And so me and David Lake, a fellow student of mine, would climb up Mick's towers. You know, he had a couple of towers there and we'd climb to the top and work on his Jacobs wind machines and learn how to turn the commutator and put some sandpaper on there just to form the brushes that would run on them, how to make a blade, how to balance a blade, all of these things. I learned with Mick. He really made it real for me to see the wind machine turning, charging the batteries. It wasn't just in a book anymore. So Mick is a big person in my life to kind of introduce me to what solar was, because he introduced me to like Mark Klein, for example, who was doing sustainable home construction and Jim Kerbel, who was really a pioneer in wiring PV systems together and teaching people how to put these systems together. And these kinds of guys were, Terry Parker over there at my namesake, <laughs> right, right over there right. at Midwest Renewable Energy Association. These were the folks that stuck it out and kept the faith, just like you, Johnny. You didn't let it get you down that Reagan cut all that funding. You kept Carbondale going and then put out the best manual that was out there for photovoltaics in the world, maybe at that time, Johnny, it was that important. And of course, everybody, the solar installation manual that Solar Energy International puts out even today is a fine example of solar energy education, of course. But, Great. Uh, Let's go back and talk about the home power days and the effects of Home Power Magazine and turning it into Solar Pro Magazine. Tell us about your early experiences with the whole home power crowd, because that really made a difference in both of our lives, I'm sure. Like I say, I started in 88 and I started hearing about this new magazine, the only trade magazine that we had, right? Because the only other magazine that was out there, I think, was like a SIA, a newsletter or something like that, right? This was before there was a solar industry at all. No one was even talking about an industry. This was called the Home Power Crowd. These were individuals that wanted to implement solar into their own lives and live off grid and stuff. But that magazine had a profound effect. Tell us about your first connections to that. So I first started getting connected with it through Conrad Hines, who was the guy who taught me what the word photovoltaics meant over there at Jordan Energy Institute. And he told me about this crew that was out there in California that was doing a magazine. And so our library, Allison Hines, Conrad's wife, running the library at Jordan Energy Institute, started to bring Home Power Magazine to the library. And so for me and David and all the other students there, we just started sucking up every word that was in there. At the time, it was just a 
a black and white magazine. It had a little tech corner at the end that talked a little bit about wiring, but then it would tell you these stories. Each magazine would have a picture on the front of an actual system, actual PV panels with wires and batteries and a charge controller and everything that we were learning about. But there it was, a picture. And then you'd open the magazine and there was Richard and telling you about this new magazine that he was writing for the people, for home power. This was not for development work. This was not for the U.S. government. This was just for folks who are out in the woods who wanted to make a little difference and live a more cleaner, more sustainable life. And indeed, that magazine, for example, when I first met Richard, he gave me one of the cardinal rules of off-grid use, and that was keep the communications away from the rock and roll. And what he meant by that was that when he started in, why did he get solar power? Why did Richard get solar power when he moved up to Agate Flat over there, just north of the Oregon border, just north of California in the Oregon? And he said it was to run his radio, to run his Grateful Dead tapes. <laughs> that, right. was, that was it. And, you know, before really then- important. But what he meant was, if you're going to also have your ham radio, I mean, they had CB radios, I guess, back then, and they were running their CB radios and their Grateful Dead boombox. That was the two most important <laughs> loads. And before they would just run their truck up the hill, right, and charge the battery, then take the battery out of the truck, run on the battery overnight, and then in the morning, take the battery out, and then just sort of kickstart their truck on a downhill, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then charge their batteries on the way to town. Down. And so this was how you lived until they got a photovoltaic panel. And all of them were used panel from PVUSA and other things like that, because the panels were $10, $12, $15 a watt back then, right, Johnny? And so you'd get these government panels, these bronzed up panels where the EVA had really yellowed and stuff like that. And so you get these gold and bronze panels from the PVUSA stuff. And you go to Jim Kerbel's house and you'd see this patchwork of 12 or 15 different types of solar panels up there to power his house. And so, you know, 10, 12 bucks a panel, that was difficult to get panels back then. But Richard was putting together systems in that magazine that was able to utilize those panels. Where could I get those panels? Where could I buy used panels? Where can I get wires? What wires do I use? This was what really introduced and helped so many people get into solar power because it was written for folks by folks, right, who did this stuff. And so it was usable. And I remember I met Bobo Schultz and Kathleen Schultz because Kathleen wrote a little article in the back of the magazine about what it was like to live off grid. And so it really gave people, women, children, men, what an idea of what it was like to live in an off grid house. It was just such a complete magazine. It was what turned us all on every month. We were just dying to see the next version of what was going on out there. And eventually they went color and and got really big and so it was just amazing to watch that. Yeah, a lot of those old modules still work. Oh, sure. Yeah, I got an Arco 50-watt module in my house here, still putting up like 47, 46 watts, something like that. It's just uh, stable, solid technology back then. And yeah, and a lot of them, the EVA wasn't quite right, the cushioning material between the solar cells, between the glass there. And it yellowed up a little bit and that reduced the voltages quite a bit. But we saw the industry solved that problem. And so it's not an issue anymore. Home power was a great contributor to all of us solar educators as well. We would await 
that magazine coming. It would help our curriculum development. We could yeah. use it as case studies. We took the drawings and the electrical schematics right out of that magazine, put them into overhead transparencies, and were able to teach about PV systems that just made practical sense to people. Home Power Magazine also evolved into Solar Pro Magazine and made a terrific contribution. It was also what we used for as a recruitment tool, as a marketing effort to attract yeah. students to the early days of SEI as well. Before there was an internet to get the message out, Home Power Magazine and Solar Pro Magazine were out there promoting us solar educators. Terrence, I'd love to hear more about your early days with the Midwest Renewable Association and the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair. I remember having some pretty fun and high times with you attending those events years ago. Tell us about the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, okay? Yeah. So this was association started by those, that little locus of folks up there. They were felt like the technology was getting there and home power was promoting it a little bit more. And people were interested in learning more about this and how could they do, you know, they're all very community minded folks up there. And so they had a lot to give. There was a lot to give on solar thermal technologies. Bob, uh, his last name is escaping me. He Bob Ramlo. Bob Ramlow. Yes. And he was so good at solar solar thermal. And then there was Mark, who was so good at building. And then there was Mick, so good at wind systems. And Jim, so good at PV. They had a lot to give. And so they decided, you know what? We should put together some sort of energy fair that people can come and we can set up little booths and little training sessions and little demos of things that we can go around. We'll put up a little PV on a stick over here and we'll set up a little array over here and we'll run the band off of the solar power. And I remember that first year when we set it up, we were having a real trouble grounding the system, right? And it was real trouble getting that band. It was kind of wet. And all of a sudden we're getting a lot of feedback and stuff. But Jim and the crew, they kind of figured out how to get that going. And we had a great night of music that night run on solar power and wind power mick had set up an entire wind tower with a jacob short box up at amherst during the fair so that's how i got there in the first midwest renewable energy fair was in stevens amherst wisconsin and mick and i took his old volkswagen pickup truck do you remember that johnny that smoke bomb of a truck he used to have (laughs) yeah (laughs) that thing would arrive in a giant cloud of smoke he loved that little diesel pickup and he would drag his trailer with all those tower sections and the thing and we built that tower right there on site put up that wind machine and we ran that fair for the first time and it was a successful fair that year and people came they actually attended and they liked it and it was a lot of fun for the kids and all of that and it just sort of built up from there and eventually the Midwest Renewable Energy Association got their own little house and their own land and things like that and we started holding the fair there it became a premier education venue for folks that were looking to get a hard education in just a weekend about a variety of different topics, sustainability, wind, wiring, photovoltaics, micro hydro, these sorts of technologies. And it just became more and the thing just grew and grew and grew. And the MRA is still teaching today. They're kind of a sister organization to Solar Energy International in many ways. And for many years, they ran this outdoor festival before there were indoor 
conferences and before we were going to Las Vegas with 40,000 people doing major indoor events and solar conferences. The Midwest Renewable Energy Fair continued to do this wonderful outdoor exhibit where people could come and kick the tires, so to speak, and get involved and learn about solar energy from the people who were actually doing it and living with it. That's right. It was with Jordan Energy Institute and the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair and Home Power Magazine in those years, 88, 89, 90, when I was really getting my education in solar. And then in 92, when I got with Solar Energy International to and Home Power to really tune up my capabilities before I went out to the Marshall Islands to work for the government out there and developing policy and putting in solar systems and remote sites and teaching and setting up a trade solar energy, like a maintainer certification for folks at the local college in the Marshall Islands. So I was very proud of my work that we ended up doing there. And, you know, when you work in the developing world, especially back then when we were installing a lot of eight watt, thin light, fluorescent tube kinds of lighting with relatively cheap products, they wouldn't last too long. And it wasn't until we started getting LED lighting that we could put into some of these developing world homes where we started getting a little more sustainable systems. But you had to deal with a bit of failure. You know, you had to deal with sometimes solar power wasn't taken up right away by those islanders and you had to go back and try again and these sorts of things. So there was a lot of technology transfer kinds of stuff that just ended up taking time. You know, you just wanted folks to go away from those smoky kerosene lanterns and check out this new fluorescent light. There's less smoke. It's more sustainable for the environment. It's less work for you collecting and paying for that fuel and stuff like that. But kerosene lanterns are a technology. And one brother could teach another younger brother how it worked. And you could tell how full or how empty the little lantern was. And you knew where to get spare parts, the wick and the flu and things like that. That's a technology. And those sorts of same lessons needed to be applied to solar. When I was working with Ward Bauer in the Marshalls, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to set up a place where they could get spare parts. We were trying to set up a place where they could learn about how the technology worked. And so you had to kind of take the lessons of the old and apply them to the new stuff. And sometimes that just took time. And it was a bit frustrating sometimes when you're working in the developing world, putting in pieces of technology that, well, it's not going to happen, you know, right like that. It's going to maybe take some time and a couple of different efforts to really get it to stick. And so sometimes there are people right now working in solar power that are doing the kinds of work that I was doing that are spending the year after year in those countries in Africa and South America and other places to make sure that this technology sticks. So a lot of good work being done by folks we don't hear a lot about. It's a lovely industry. I really enjoy this so much. Sean, how about you? Where are you seeing folks most interested? What topics are they getting some, they just can't get enough of? You know, my specialty is getting people NABCEP certified. So I work a lot on that and helping people get all these NABCEP certifications and the associate classes. So I keep pretty busy with that, but it's really neat to have the opportunity to go and teach these classes and work all over the world. In fact, Terrence, I remember I probably met you before that, but I know you go to a lot of different solar shows. And I specifically remember meeting you in the Philippines when you were working for Solar Bridge. And I was trying to think about what year that was. I think it was at this conference they called SMX, which is the place where it was. That's a Philippine place. And I remember too, I was like, oh, 
Terrence Parker. Is that the guy that does South Park? You know, <laughs> I think his name's Trey Parker, but I was joking with you about that. But I was going to say, if anybody that's listening wants to meet Terrence and get his autograph, it's pretty easy to find. I see him all the time at every solar conference I go to pretty much. I mean, even all the way from Shanghai to Boston and everywhere else in between. Of course, we've got the Las Vegas, the Anaheim, the San Diego, the Long Beach, all those different conferences. And if you just go to the Solus booth, you'll see him there. And I think I saw you in Las Vegas. You were doing lots of presentations there and people could go get your autograph. They should bring their old <laughs> You call them yellowed up solar modules and get Terrence and Johnny's <laughs> autographs on them. Then you put them behind your desk and tell them that people have these old modules are still performing very well. And that's a great way to show the industry how good this stuff's working. I see a lot of people worried so much about recycling of PV modules. And it's like, hey, we got these old Arco modules and these really old modules. I bought 12 Arco modules used just because I thought they were so cool. and. As far as I can tell, they work as good as new. Yeah, I'm sure there's a little bit of degradation going on, but if that follows forward with the modules that we're making right now, that means we don't have to worry so much about the recycling into the spectrum there. I was wondering too, I was wanted to even ask you guys, when did you get to know your first solar module? Boy, well, I got to know my first solar modules when Mark Fitzgerald, the fellow that kind of got NABCEP and accreditation started in the world, got us our first PV modules. They were Spire modules. And on some of those early ARCO modules, we were working at Colorado Mountain College in the 1980s, mm. 1980 to 1990. Steve McCarney and Ken Olson and I were teaching the Energy Efficient Building Trades Program and the Solar Retrofit Program at Colorado Mountain College. And we were able to get some of our first modules back then when things were in that 12 and $15 a watt cost. It was right. a big deal to get a few modules back then. But that's what got us started with them back in the mid 80s. Wow. So mid 80s, that's pretty good. Spire modules. I got to look that one up. Yep. Yeah. And my first modules that I actually touched were at Jordan Energy Institute. This would be January of 88. And they were unisolar modules made by United Solar. They were amorphous silicon modules, double junction or single junction at the time. And they were manufactured in Michigan, right? They were manufactured in Troy, Michigan, near Detroit. And so those were the PV modules that were given to the school here in Michigan. The schools in Michigan, the bandels were made in Michigan. And so those were the first PV modules that I ever got a hold of. And then I started to see the crystalline modules there as well. We had a few examples of crystalline modules as well. So 1988, that's when I first started touching modules. And now an old friend of ours is recycling them, right? Sam, right, Johnny? Sam Vanderhoof, he's out there recycling PV modules. And he's struggling, of course, to make sure that the system is working just the way it should and that sort of thing. But I think that there will be a growing business in the recycling of modules. And then the repurposing of modules. Now, we're taking modules that are coming off of homes that are just a few years old. People are upgrading their systems. We're taking those modules to Native American Indian reservations across the country. And we're repurposing because, Sean, like you say, these modules have no moving parts. Nothing runs out. Nothing ever wears out. And they're going to be working long after all of us are gone. Yeah, they're magic crystals. We're talking about getting them to Native American reservations. How do you do that? Like, do you have a way for people to donate them? Well, there's a bunch of different outfits that are doing that now. And anyone that wants that connection can get a hold of us and can learn more about it. 
One of the issues that people have also talked about is why don't we get some of all these used modules to go into the developing world? And that sounds like a good idea, but I think we have to be real careful about that because when we introduce a boatload of modules coming into Africa from the developed world, in many ways undermines the efforts that are going on in country. There's a lot of people in country with their own businesses, their own small businesses doing solar systems, and we don't want to undercut those people trying to make a living trying to do solar by flooding the market with a lot of used equipment. So I think we have to be careful where we apply this used equipment, but it certainly makes sense to take advantage of it. And before we talk about recycling, let's talk about repurposing modules. There's a tremendous market out there for that. Yeah, I do a lot of that myself, like say on my mom's house, she's got 53 modules up there and they're pretty much all repurposed. I a lot of times just say they're recycled, but there were modules that people got rid of, like some of them were from training companies and things like that. I'm the president of NorCal Solar right now, and I had a call with somebody saying, hey, how do I get rid of these things? As like, I'll put them on my roof. I tell a lot of people that, hey, just put them on the north roof, you know, put the new ones on the south, switch it to the north roof. And pretty much the north roof makes about two thirds the amount of electricity as the south roof. So just keep them making electricity. Don't throw them in the landfill. That's what I tell people. I think the industry could do a better job about making those opportunities available. I think there's a lot of folks in the world that could use that. We just have to be careful how we do it. But there's no question that that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, even the salespeople are overly encouraging people to get rid of their old system. They think like, oh, just like you upgrade your computer, you got to upgrade your solar system. But if you have a solar system that was installed 20 years ago, it's still making beautiful sine waves that are getting sent back to the grid. And it might not be as efficient. And so that means it takes up more space on the roof. And that's really it. It just takes up a little bit more space on the roof. And other than that, there's really no downside. And Solus, for example, the inverter company I'm working for now is seeing a lot of opportunities in repowering. There's no need for you to tear down those old systems, even if the old systems that are operating at maybe 450 volts or something like that. With these new inverters that have such wide operating ranges, they can easily pull power from these old 450 volt PV arrays, you know, 600 volt max PV arrays, as well as older 1000 volt PV arrays operating at 750 or 800 volts, something like that. With these new inverters, with these super wide operating ranges, they can repower these older PV arrays and squeeze out some of the power that's still available from those arrays that maybe have degraded six, seven percent or something over the course of, you know, since 2012 or something when they were first installed. And now you can add that new communication capability, the new safety features, and the new interoperability of these inverters to these older PV arrays, which are still just perfectly fine, right? I mean, yeah, yeah you got to do some due diligence there with respect to the PV source circuits to make sure there's no cracked or bad wiring that's been exposed to UV over the last 10 years and stuff like that, because these new inverters have arc fault and ground fault sensitivity and will definitely find issues with the PV wiring. But if the PV wiring is solid, there is no reason why you can't repower up some of these PV arrays that have been put in back in the Barack Obama days. Yeah, another thing that people should take into consideration is the different versions of net metering. So right now I have the net metering one version. I'm in PG&E territory of California. And I have five kilowatts over my head. And if I went and put on a new PV system and say I did seven kilowatts and threw away my five kilowatts, I'd have to switch over to net metering three, which yeah. isn't as good as net metering one. And I might be losing money. 
But yeah. hey, I'd be saving the planet some more though, with that seven kilowatts. That's the sort of thing, Sean, that kind of regulatory change or shift in how the utility companies are dealing with the distributed energy resources saturating their grids is that we essentially had to change our inverter. Our hybrid inverter, you really were encouraged with NEM3 to get storage because now it wasn't so profitable just to start feeding in solar power onto the grid for credit because you just weren't getting that one-to-one anymore. And so it actually made a little bit more sense to save that power and then discharge all that during the high tariff periods from four to eight or whatever they happen to be. And so essentially the regulatory change in California from NEM2 to NEM3 shifted the kind of inverter that would become a standard platform for homeowners in California. With NEM1 and 2, you could use a grid tie inverter and set it for feed-in priority. Whatever solar was there, you converted it to AC and you fed it onto the grid. But now that's changed. And so a standard grid tie inverter anymore isn't ideally suited to these territories. And really a grid tie inverter that's battery capable of storing that energy during the day and discharging it when you need to avoid the high tariffs is really the most profitable way to go. So the regulatory environment and how the utilities are adjusting to this new DER saturation is modified the kinds of equipment that is available for purchase and to get the best value out of solar panels for homeowners. Yeah, and I think it's making it so you don't get 100% credit for exporting. It's kind of the natural evolution of things. Solar is getting less expensive. We're getting more and more on the grid. So it's something that's going to happen and we just have to deal with it. And that's great that a lot of inverter companies, including your inverter company that you're working for, Solus, have the battery option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting for a homeowner and Johnny probably has heard this sort of thing too. And when you're selling a system and you're talking to the homeowner about batteries, you throw in a little bit of security and resiliency kinds of arguments, right? Where, well, you know, there's a lot of fires these days. We don't like to talk about that, but occasional power outages and things like that to justify the install of a home battery system to provide that security and resiliency to the home. And I think to provide a better payback for folks that are in an M3 type territory. However, in the commercial world, for commercial building owners, they aren't so concerned about security and resiliency. They're concerned about rates of return and investment strategies, these sorts of things. And when you add batteries to a commercial rooftop, now they can do some time of use stuff. They can do some peak shaving. They can do some load demand stuff. And so it's daytime use of that battery to optimize their load management and profile to the grid that is more important to them than the way and the reasons why a homeowner might be convinced to get into a battery system. So I find that interesting as well. Great. So Terrence, tell us a little bit about building integrated photovoltaics, BIPV. Yeah. We're seeing a resurgence a bit of that here at Solus. Uh, folks are asking us about how can I tie in my new PV shingles to your inverters? Because well, these PV shingles are kind of small PV modules, really, you know, 17 watts, these sorts of things. And you got to kind of harness them together to develop a module that's 200 watts or something. And even that's kind of tiny these days. Truthfully, I think all of us can say that 
the days of the 144 watt module are over. And we might definitely say even the days of the 250 watt module are over. And I think we're on the verge of saying the 310 watt module is almost over. And we're really focusing a lot on the 400 watt modules these days. And at the show, I think we saw some 800 watt modules, which were huge. So we're seeing a real evolution of that. And so when you look at these new building integrated shingles and Tesla, of course, is also introducing a new building integrated whole system, really. So I think there's still some appeal to someone like Elon Musk, who looks at solar and sees these big blue monoblocks on the roof and goes, why can't we just put the solar right into the roof? And so it becomes this kind of a logical thing that folks just sort of gravitate to who don't know much about photovoltaics, but there's some real issues with trying to turn a solar panel into a roofing material. And so what we did at Unisolar was we were creating these flexible laminates and we could bond them directly to a metal roofing system. And so although in 1997, you can go on Popular Mechanics and in one of their old legacy issues, you will see the Unisolar PV shingle. I mean, it was insanely exciting at the time. And it was only 14 watts or something like that at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was an actual shingle. And it actually worked as a shingle and roofers would pound it into the roof with nails. And so there was some excitement about getting into solar photovoltaics. And indeed, at Unisolar, we decided to go all in on that and develop a laminate, the flexible laminate that could be bonded to metal roofing. And then you could just install the metal roofing the way it goes. Yeah, a lot of people think that BIPV is this new thing. So you've seen it for decades. Exactly. For decades, it's been out there because it's always been sort of an attractive proposition that, boy, you know, those are big, heavy glass things up on the roof. It doesn't really add to the attractiveness of the roof. It's sort of like photovoltaic guys like me and Johnny love to see it because it's pretty. We love it. We love to see it and what it means. Purely aesthetic folks, they see it as a bit of a distraction on the roof. And so BIPV has always had some attraction to folks that are looking at the industry from the outside, especially. I think the Europeans are using BIPV in some exciting ways, using it to basically provide the glazing for the outside of a building, for the skin of the building itself, even on the vertical wall applications, both in Germany and in Spain, I understand we've got some applications of BIPV that are very novel. Indeed. And if you go to the Intersolar show in Germany, for example, you'll see I believe it's an Italian company that's doing a kind of glazing where they can color the solar panels a variety of different colors. And so you're really getting into a situation where they can utilize these higher power cells in a glazing material and really still get good power per square foot. These sorts of efforts on a skyscraper buildings and stuff like that, these buildings have very tiny roofs, right, compared to the amount of electricity that's being used underneath. And so to glaze the whole side of the building makes more sense, of course, than trying to do the roof. And the advances in PV cells, which we haven't talked a lot about, but that's an exciting thing that I want the audience to know is that there's guys like me and Johnny out there, but there's also physicists out there that are doing pioneering work on solar cells today. And so if you wanted to get into the science of photovoltaics, there's a rich environment for you to join there as far as physicists developing the actual solar cells themselves down to mechanical engineers who are developing better materials and better ways to put together PV modules. There's stuff you can do with advanced degrees in PV, as well as just getting right out of high school and starting your own solar company and getting involved in this industry that, like I say, you'll be able to talk to your children about and be proud when you walk, come home in the evening after almost falling off that damn roof. 
that you helped somebody reduce their carbon footprint and give them a bit more security in their home. It's a very satisfying feeling. Recycling is getting better. We'll develop a way to recycle those LFP modules. We'll develop a way where I was recently reading about a new way to recycle wind power blades right on site. Sometimes you see them being trucked off site, but you can grind them right there on site with these new grinders into a pile of stuff and easily transport them with normal trucks. And so there's some real good things happening, I think, in the industry. And like I say, there's so many opportunities. And I was talking about this just recently about all the jobs that this industry is creating. It's a big deal the kinds of work that this industry is giving to folks. I love it. I can't talk enough about it. So this has been a really great interview. We went on for quite a long time. We're almost up there at an hour and a half. This kind of reminds me of a Lex Friedman podcast, how long we're going. I know that guy goes on for many hours. And I do have some very super special people here. Of course, we have Johnny Weiss from Solar Energy International, the founder of SEI with us. And I'm very honored to have Johnny here. One thing that I wanted to give a shout out to Johnny about for too, is he's always been such a friendly and welcoming person. So I've worked for different competitors that have the same clientele base as SEI over the years. I work for lots of different organizations, not just one. I work for all kinds of organizations. And Johnny has always been super friendly, reassuring from day one, from the first time I met him. And I know I met Johnny a long time ago at some of these solar conferences. I don't remember the exact same time. So I just wanted to really give a thanks to Johnny. And Johnny also, a couple of weeks ago, invited me out to SEI and I got to go see their training center. And that was a great experience going out there. He gave me some hot tips too. Went and saw this place called Black Canyon, which was steeper than the Grand Canyon. It was pretty scary actually being up there on the edge. I had to be on my hands and knees crawling to the edge. But thanks so much, Johnny. And so for Johnny, how should people find out about you or get in touch with you or find out how to donate some of the solar modules to the Native Americans and anything else you want to just kind of say about what you're doing or anything like that? Great. Well, well, let me give a shout out to Solar Energy International, SEI, and everybody can just go to the SEI website. It's a vast website, www.solarenergy.org solarenergy.org. And that's going to put you in touch with SEI here in Colorado. And we've got a wonderful campus out here that's been 32 years old now. And we do hands-on training, getting people ready for the PV industry. SEI also has a lot of online courses, which are available to people to take on a variety of different levels. There's beginner classes, intermediate classes, advanced classes. So anyone wanting to pursue a professional career and become part of the global workforce now, I encourage you to get a hold of SEI as one of the organizations that can provide education and training to launch your career in renewable energies. Thanks so much, Johnny. And now let's get back to Terrence and Terrence can tell us how to find out what Terrence is up to. And also Terrence, were you surprised? Did we surprise you good with our secret surprise guest, Johnny Weiss from SEI? I was surprised. I got to say, I wasn't too sure who that was going to be. And there was a couple of folks from my past that I was worried would show up, but luckily it was Johnny. <laughs> my pleasure yeah. to join you, Terrence, today. My pleasure to join you and to get brought up to date on all the exciting stuff you're doing. You're certainly, as a graduate and alumni of SCI, you're one of our heroes as well. So thank you for the work you do. As I say, I get up every morning looking forward to what sort of solving some problems and putting some new educational 
know, app notes or whatever out there. It's still a very exciting job for me. And today at Solus, I'm one of the old timers and then we're bringing in all this new talent and stuff. And so you should check out the Solus Inverters website. You can go to solusinverters.com and make sure when you get to that, you look in the top right corner and see the little USA flag at the top corner there because we have websites from around the world. So make sure you click on the US website. We have job offerings open right now. You can check that out and a wide variety of different types of PV string inverters for you to take a look at. You can find me. It's funny because Sean and Johnny both call me Terry. And this is the name I always went with in my career, younger career. And it was only in 1999 when I joined Unisolar that I started using Terrence. So it's really great to hear Sean and Johnny from my old life, you know, calling me Terry the way I used to call. That's what Mick calls me, right? And or, or Bobo, you know, Bob Schultz, he all calls me that. So I love to hear from, it, it really makes me feel good to know that I was involved in a little bit of the early history of this business and that it's been such a wonderful career for me to be able to travel the world and meet people from around the world trying to become just a transition into this new era. It's still very exciting for me. And so you can find me at terrence.parker at solicitinverters.com or tpsolar at gmail. That's a personal email you can use. And I say, get a hold of me and we'll talk solar power and maybe put together a design or something for you. Great. So thanks so much, Johnny Weiss. And thanks so much, Terry Parker or Terrence Parker, <laughs> who's not the guy that started South Park, but that would be no. kind of funny if he was, because <laughs> I think I like being funny. So let's have a good time with solar and storage. And thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about Sean's classes on HeatSpring, you can go to solarsean.com. You can go to heatspring.com forward slash Sean. And besides my classes, there's a guy that you guys were talking about, and his name is Bob Ramlow, and he teaches a class called Solar Hot Water Design and Installation. So you could also check out his class there. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>